title of today's message is called Tithing on Trial. And we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 6. It's going to be the first of many scriptures today, so you might want to keep your Bibles ready. Uh, we're going to be going through a lot of different scriptures. This is going to be more of a teaching sermon. I'm going to be talking um, in this, about this subject in depth. And we're going to do something a little bit more unusual at the end, where if you have a question or you want a clarification or something like that, just write that down on the back of your bulletin or, or keep it in the back of your mind and we'll answer any questions at the end. Because I know that this is kind of a, a complicated subject. Has anybody ever heard that Medicare or the political statement that Medicare is the third rail of American politics? That you touch that rail, it's like a subway. The third rail is the electrified rail and if you touch that rail you die. In, in politics, uh, Medicare is considered the third rail. Any politician that touches that or threatens to change it, they're going to get voted out of office immediately. Pastors often look at giving and tithing as the same way to preach on. You don't want to touch it. You don't want to talk about it. And so I'm going to go and touch the third rail of church politics uh, today and discuss exactly what the Bible has to say about it. I heard a story once about a family who came home from church and after they had lunch, they had sent their six-year-old son off to play while they relaxed in the living room. They had a Packer game to watch, like we do today. And after a while, his mother realized that they hadn't heard from their son in a while. And anybody who has, who has had young children or has young children understands that that is a very scary situation when you stop hearing young children. It usually means they're getting into something or doing something they're not supposed to do. So the mother got up from her recliner and she went into her son's bed, bedroom and listened right outside this door. And she was puzzled because she kept hearing this jingling coming from in there. And then a little bit of, of, of scuffle and then some more jingling. And so she kind of just cracked the door open a little bit to look to see what her son was doing. And her son was sitting on the floor with a handkerchief there and his piggy bank opened and all of his change on the floor, you know, probably three, four, five, six dollars worth of change on the floor, and he was gathering it up and he was putting it in to this handkerchief. And he got it all in the handkerchief and he picked it up and he'd throw it way up in the air and it would all come crashing down onto the floor. And he would look up, he'd look at, he'd, he'd, he'd kind of go like this. And so he'd gather it all back up, put it back in there, throw it up again, and it all came back down and he, he's like, and he, he looked up and he went like this again. And his mother, and just, couldn't stand it anymore. She's like, what in the world are you doing? What are you doing? And so her son said, well, I was in Sunday school this morning, and they were talking about giving as, our, as an act of worship to God. And I forgot to bring my offering this morning. So I figured when I got home, since I forgot to bring my offering, I would get home and I would throw everything up in the air. Whatever God needed in that offering, he could grab it, and whatever hit the ground would still be mine. As cute as this story is, it does kind of highlight one of the common misconceptions about giving as an act of worship. And there are probably few other topics that make people, including most pastors, more uncomfortable in a church than discussing the subject of tithes and offerings. And I think much of this is because, frankly, there's been a lot of bad teaching in the church about this, about what giving the tithe and offering means. And we'll get into some of that today. A lot of it is because, honestly, in the church, there has been a lot of scandals involving money, hasn't there? Even today, you have people on TV saying, you know, send more money to me and God's going to bless you because I need a luxury plane. 
you know, I need $60 million for a new luxury plane. And that leaves a very bad taste in people's mouth when they hear about that. And, and it affects their giving even in their local church, whether they realize it or not. And sometimes, and frankly, as a pastor, I can, I can say this, sometimes it's just cowardice. We don't want to touch the subject. We're afraid of people's reactions. Or we have fear, doubt, and unbelief to teach the subject correctly. And I'll get into that in just a little bit. Um, also in this message. So today we're going to look at what the Bible says in reference to giving and our relationship with God, and particularly our worship of God. And we're going to begin with a section of the New Testament to keep in the back of our minds as we go into this and explore this subject. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 6. Remember this, whoever soul sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each one of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor, and their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. And you will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Amen. Father God, we just thank you for your word. And I ask, Father, that you just give us clear minds and a clear heart this morning, that you will strip away any misconceptions or any, any thoughts of, of that money and church are two different things, and that you will see that you are in everything in our lives, Father, and that we will come to understand the blessing of worshiping you through giving. Father God, I ask this in your name. Amen. Now we're going to go back to this scripture in a little bit, but first I want to lay a foundation of giving as an act of worship and where this comes from. Now one of the things we have to realize about the Bible, God's word is what is called a progressive revelation. God starts out in Genesis detailing how the universe is created. He then goes and talks about humanity and how he created man, how he created the animals, how he created the fish and the sea and the plants and the birds of the air. He, he goes in and details that, and he's setting this up to bring us to um, how and why humanity fell. And eventually, he lays that groundwork and then carries that on to why we need a Savior. So it's a progressive revelation. And the progressive revelation that also does same things or the same thing with individual truth. And this idea of giving as an act of worship is no different. And this morning we're going to do a quick survey through Scripture, looking at giving from its historical perspective in the beginning, using the book of Genesis, and then move forward a little in the historical record to look at what the Old Testament law had to say about it. And then we're going to transition into the New Testament and finally its application for us today. So let's start with the origin 
of this precept that we call tithing. And to properly understand tithing, we have to go all the way back to the beginning and understand this idea of sacrifice, and particularly first fruits. In a, immediately after Adam and Eve's failure in the garden, God killed an animal. And he used that to show them the, the seriousness of sin, that sin causes death. And he used the animal to illustrate that to them, and he clothed them in the skin of that animal. And from then on, they understood that they would have to offer regular sacrifices of animal as atonement or payment for their sin. And the primary idea of sacrifice is seen in the principle of something called first fruits. So let's look at that today. And you're going to see the first time that Bible alludes to it is in Genesis chapter 4 with the story of Cain and Abel. In Genesis chapter 4 verse 2, it says that Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. If you don't know, Cain and Abel are Adam and Eve's first two children. Over the, in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord and Abel also brought an offering fat portions from some of the firstborn in his flock. The Lord looked on with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. This idea of first fruits. The idea of fruits, first fruits means God gets the best. In this case, in the Bible, the word first means primary or the exalted or the best. Hopefully after today we can say that the Green Bay Packers are the first in, the, in that division. That, that's kind of what we're, the, the idea of first fruits means. It's not necessarily the chronological that something came first, it is that something is first among everything else. And the meaning here it means that that is what is most valuable is what you should give in worship. It also means that giving is an act of worship and sacrificing what is most treasured among you and other people to someone or something greater than yourself. The very word worship means that you are ascribing great worth and honor to something or someone. That's what worship means, to ascribe worth, to say that you are awesome and I'm giving this to you because you're so awesome. We do this in our love relationships with flowers and stuff like that. And if you get nothing out of today's message, cement that thought in your mind that worship means you are ascribing worth to someone. And that means we worship with our singing, we worship with our lives, and we worship with our giving. Everything in our lives needs to be about worshiping God. Amen. Now look at the scripture again. It said that Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil. Well, Abel brought in their culture what was considered to be the best of the best of the best of his flocks. To paraphrase this account, it was, it was like on the way to worship, Cain just kind of walked into the barn, scooped some of the, the moldy grain out of the back of the, the barn that was laying on the floor, tossed it in a bag, slung it over his shoulder, and went to church. But on the other hand, Abel carefully searched his flock. He went and he found the best lamb that he could. 
He found one without spot, without wrinkle. It was the strongest one. He didn't go and grab the runt of the litter. He didn't go and grab the one that had just broken its leg and he had to kill anyway. He found the best of the best of the best. The one that the farmer would want to keep and breed out. That's the one that he took in offering to God. And not only did he take the best, but he butchered that animal and he took the best cuts of that animal to, cut, to bring as a burnt offering to God. And that is what made the difference here. You see, Cain was just fulfilling an obligation. Cain was just going to church because I have to go to church or, I'm, or my mom's going to get mad at me. I got to give something because or dad will get, get on my case. And for many people, that's what a tithe is. It's just fulfilling what you consider to be an obligation. But Abel worshipped God with his gift. Abel was sacrificing something of great worth to show his devotion to the greatness of God in his life. You know, if I, Tammy would be happy, you know, if I bring her a gas station rolls home. But really, if I bring her a gas station rolls home for Valentine's Day, and its petals are falling off, and it's kind of black, and, and you know, you can just tell it's been there for a while, she's not really going to probably... In the back, she'd probably thank me, but in the back of her mind, she's probably thinking, you couldn't have like planned to just stop somewhere else to get me a, a better flower. I mean, how much more would it show my love if I bought her a dozen nice long-stemmed roses, had them in a vase with a giant thing of chocolate out there? Wouldn't that show my love just a little bit better? Isn't that the way we're supposed to come to church? Prepared to offer God our everything? And that's the idea of first fruit. So let's look at the first example of tithing. First example of tithing in the Bible is found in Genesis 14. The background is that Abram just won a battle. He had a whole bunch of, of nations and tribes coming against him. God favors him. He wins the battle, gains a considerable amount of possessions from this battle. The enemy is fleed. They left their stuff behind. You know, to the victor goes the spoils, and he gets all this stuff. And then he is met by a person who brings refreshments to him and his men. And that's where we pick it up in Genesis 14, 18. It says, Then Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered, you, who delivered your enemies into your hand, and then Abram gave him a tenth, that word tenth is what tithe means, of everything. First we ask, well, who is Melchizedek and why is Abram seemingly honoring or worshiping him with a tithe or a tenth of the spoils and the plunder of, what, of the battle that he has gone through? Most commentators believe that Melchizedek to be Noah's firstborn son, Shem who among all of Noah's sons, if you look back through the genealogies and, and look back through the histories in the Bible, you'll see that Shem was the one that stayed the most faithful to God. And you're thinking, well, wait a minute, this is hundreds of years later. How could it be Shem? I, but if you look at the genealogies again and you map that out, Shem actually outlives Abraham by about 35 years. In fact, Shem lived so long that he could have seen Isaac's entire life. He could have seen Jacob come into being 
as, as being called Israel and seeing the nation of Israel born. In fact, I think that, that Shem could have lived long enough, and I was looking at the genealogies when I was preparing for this message, that I think it's very likely that God allowed the last person that saw God's deliverance in the flood to see Judah, Jacob's son, be born and see the, the ancestor of the Messiah be born. I think that's very, very possible looking at the Bible's genealogies. So Melchizedek is Shem, who is the oldest of those who worshiped Yahweh God. And God, and therefore, could accept an offering on God's behalf. He was the high priest of God at that time. And Abraham, or Abram, recognized that and gave him the first fruits of what he had won in the battle. You see, the first use of the word tithe there, which means tenth, and it wasn't a tenth of what you wanted to give. It was taking the best of what you had, those first fruits, and giving it as an act of worship. Because biblically, that word tithe is always connected with the idea of first fruits, that you're giving the best. Again, you're not looking for the moldy grain in the back of the, yard, of the barn. You're looking for the, the great stuff. So that's the idea and the origins of the, the idea of first fruits and tithing. However, in Canaan, during that time, nor before Israel became a nation, nor when they went to Egypt, nor when they came back out of Egypt in the desert, um, in the early part of that, was tithing universally practiced among God's people. And remember at the beginning, I said that God's word is a progressive revelation. So let's see how this, this concept of tithing and giving and first fruits progresses into Moses giving the law. So let's look at what the law has to say about this. In the second book of the Bible, Exodus tells us of the history of Moses leading the nation of Israel out of slavery into the promised land of Canaan. And during those 40 years in the desert, Moses gives the law. The law is a set of 613 precepts. It governs civil law. It governs interpersonal relationships. It governs what kinds of worships are prescribed and proper in the temple. What kind of sacrifices and offerings do we give God? And that basic principle of the tithe is found in Leviticus 27.30, among other places in, in the first five books of the Bible, where it says that the tithe of everything from the land, whether grain of the soil or fruit of the tree, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. So this is, this is a prescription for them to know exactly how and what they are to give to God. And if you follow our chronological Bible reading plan, you're going to see the different kind of offerings that people brought to God in February and March. But prior to the beginning of this statute, everything was done as a free will offering. Everything. People would just decide in their own heart that I haven't worshipped God for a while. Let me go get something from the flock, bring it as a burnt offering, and people would just give it. In fact, in the desert, when, when God tells the nation of Israel to build the tabernacle, it is done on a free will offering. And they kept giving and giving and giving and giving and giving to the offering until finally Moses had to say, Stop! There's too much! Stop! That's probably the first and only time in history of mankind that a spiritual leader has said, stop giving. Because so much was coming in. They couldn't even hold how much was coming in. 
And as we study the Bible and its commands, its precepts and its principles, we have to ask ourselves, why did God tell his people to follow this command of tithing? God isn't a father who tells us because I said so. He wants us to understand the reasoning. He wants us to understand why his laws are written and why his precepts should be followed. Because he wants us to understand because ultimately, every time he tells us to do something or tells us not to do something, it's a reflection of who he is. And it points us to Jesus Christ. So he wants us to know the why. He's not telling us because I said so. He wants us to know the why. So we want to look at the why behind why the tithe was written into the law of God that people in the Old Testament followed. Now the tithe, or a tenth of all income earned, was instituted to support the tribe of Levi. The Levites were the tribe of the 12 tribes. God um, took one and said, you guys are going to be the priests. You guys are going to be the ones to take care of the tabernacle. You guys are going to be the ones to take care of the temple. And and you guys are going to take care of the spiritual needs of this nation. And because of this, because they were supposed to be totally focused on the things of God, they were not given an inheritance of land in the nation when they came into the promised land. Everybody else got huge tracts of land. It's kind of like Judah, or Judah, you know, he, maybe he got La Crosse County. And Ephraim would probably get Buffalo County because it's really, really hilly over there. And, and maybe Dan got this county and all of this. So they got these huge tracts of land where the families could spread out and, and have their farms. And in the, in the agrarian world, this farming community that they lived in, not having land meant that you were destitute. You had no ability to support you and your family. You had no way to get food other than the very few that would have a skilled trade. And it was very hard to kind of get into those skilled trade to become an apprentice. It's kind of like you had to know somebody. And in fact, uh, most Bible commentators believe that 90 to 98% of the people were farmers or shepherds of some types or both, or they had something to do with working on a farm. And since the Levites as a tribe could not own these huge stretches of land required for either, they and their families had to be supported by the rest of the 11 tribes. And they did it through the tithe system. Additionally, the tithe also paid for the day-to-day -day activities of the temple, which included a lot of sacrifices. And all the expenses that were associated with running a church during that time. Now, the tithe was enforced throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And the lack of honoring God and obeying the command of tithe was frequently cited by the prophets when God's, as to why God's direct judgment was occurring or to why nations were conquering them or why there was a lack of provision or famine in the land. And one of the most notable prophecies and probably one of the most misapplied verses in the Bible regarding the tithe was found in Malachi chapter 3. Now remember, when we read our Bibles, when you're doing your chronological Bible reading pro, um, plan, when you try to interpret and apply the Bible to your life, you have to take into consideration a few different things. You have to consider the time, the situation, and the audience to what this scripture was written to before you can try to apply it to your life today. You have to understand the time that they were living in, particularly with prophetic prophecy. 
before you try to interpret it to your, your modern time and your modern situation right now. And at the time that Malachi was written, the prophets Zechariah and Haggai were sent to rebuke the people of their day for delaying and finished, finishing the temple after the Hebrews came back from their exile in Babylon. Remember that Babylon came to, to Israel, wiped them out, left Jerusalem a pile of rubble. Literally not one stone was left upon another. So upon the return Israel, of Israel to its land, they had to work on rebuilding the land. And most of them were more worried about getting their homes um, set up or, or setting up their farms or getting their businesses going again. And they were neglecting getting the temple rebuilt. Malachi comes a little bit later and rebukes the people after the temple gets built, rebuilt, rebukes the people. Uh, people for failing to support the temple and support the Le Levites once that temple was built. And they, were and they were in gross violation of the law of Moses. And that's the background behind Malachi's prophecy here. So let's read it. Malachi 3, 6-12. through 12. It says, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how were we to return? God replies, will a mere mortal rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how are we robbing you? God answers, in tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nations, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing in you into your life that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines of your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty." And then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Before I read this, I said this is one of the most, one of the most misapplied verses regarding tithing in the Bible. And why do I say this? As I was studying for this message, I found all kinds of horrible scholarship on this subject, to be honest with you, including a Pentecostal pastor that said this law directly affects your salvation, and if you don't tithe, then you aren't saved. That God is going to bring out the checkbook, I guess, at the judgment seat of Christ, and if you miss some tithe, you're not going to be saved. That, of course, I think is, is pretty ridiculous. And across the nation today, pastors, and particularly pastors in our um, general fellowship, um, evangelical Pentecostals, will use this verse during this offering time as kind of a passive-aggressive way of stiff-arming their people to give more in the offering. But they ignore the context in which this scripture was written. I remember when I first got saved, I got a chance to go to a, a huge camp meeting at Rod Parsley's church. And the worship's great. It's in Columbus, Ohio, World Harvest Church. The worship was great, and, and they get you know, to the announcements, and then they take the offering, and somebody stood up, and they started to preach before the offering. And I was thinking, wow. And they preached, actually, from Malachi chapter 3, and I remembered it. And for a half an hour, he's just going, you know, just 
you know, spirit-led preaching and all this kind of stuff. And then he says, okay, ushers, we're going to take the offering. See, I thought that was the whole sermon, but it was like 25, 30 minutes long, preaching just on that kind of message. And I remember like, wow, that's a, a long sermon for, a, or a long kind of prayer for the offering. And I remember when uh, my parents separated when I was five, and I was, and when I was with my mom, I kind of got bounced back and forth from parent to parent. And I grew up around Italians. And my mother dated a full-blooded Italian guy whose parents just came off the boat from Sicily. And I picked up a lot of a culture, a lot of Italian culture and mannerisms growing up. And part of that, I think, followed me into my early Christian life. And I remember when I was a newer Christian, I would listen to a pastor using this verse during offering, and I would immediately think, I'm paying protection money to the local Don. I'm, th I'm thinking, you know, i got to pay off the don so nothing bad happens to me. And of course, this is not what the Bible is saying, but initially in my early Christianity, I kind of had the, in the back of my mind the movie The Godfather, that, that, that God was Marlon Brando sitting behind the desk petting the cat and seeing who was paying the tribute money. And whoever didn't pay the tribute money was going to get the special attention from him later that week. Now, obviously, God is not Don Corleone. I mean, obviously, this isn't the way it is. But it was in my immaturity as a new Christian. It was just the image that would come to mind during offering time. And Malachi's prophecy tells us that God plainly expected during this time, during that time of the Old Testament, that he expected them to support the work of the church through the tithe and, and, and support those who worked in the church. Saying that, we are New Testament Christians, aren't we? We do not live under the law. So let's look at our standard of faith and conduct in the New Testament and what it shows us about this notion of tithing and giving. And that brings us back to our original verse. And I, I've shortened it a little bit just to focus on one part of it. Back to Ephesians, or excuse me, not Ephesians, uh, 2 Corinthians. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things and all times, having everything you need, you will abound in every good work. Let me break this down a little bit. I, I start by asking a question. What is the currency of heaven? In other words, throughout the Bible, what, what attribute above all else has attracted God's blessing to somebody? What was Abraham, Abraham commended for? What verse started the Protestant Revolution? The righteous will live by what? Faith. Or the righteous will live by tithe? Faith. Righteous will live by faith, Romans 1.17. Faith is our standard in the New Testament. Faith should drive our worship and not the law. Law is compulsion. Following the law only prevents punishment. It doesn't necessarily bring blessing. When was the last time anybody here had a police officer pull them over and hand them a $50 bill for following the speed limit exactly? 
Does that ever happen to anybody? <laughs> I think there would actually be a lot less speeders, wouldn't there? Faith, is, faith, on the other hand, is believing God for who he says he is. Faith cries out, God, you are worthy of my everything. And that is how the law of sowing and reaping brings blessing. It's the practical exercise of faith. If you can grasp that principle, that giving is an exercise of faith in that which you worship, then giving is never a sacrifice to you. Because you have the faith to believe that God richly rewards that or people that worship Him in spirit and in truth. It is a blessing that brings more blessing. Giving in worship shows God that what you believe, what you say you believe, is really real to you. And some would say, well, God knows my heart, and I have bills to pay. God also knows your actions. And at the judgment seat of Christ, you will be judged by what you have done, not what, you, what was in your heart. Listen, can I, can I be kind of just very blatantly frank here with you? I can't be John anymore. i got to be frank. Oh, sorry. God is a no-excuses God. You can't fool a being who knows every thought you had from eternity past before you were going to think it right now. You can't fool him. You're not going to come up with an argument that's going to make God take a step back and say, oh, yeah, I never thought of that. You're not going to be able to do that with God. And when we talk about our worship of God... God put down a principle of worship in Deuteronomy 16 and 16 that said that no man should appear before the Lord empty-handed. That giving is an integral part of our worship to God. Why would God say that? Because you can't truly worship a God you don't trust to provide for you. You can't truly open yourself up and, and, and experience faith and the love and, and, and knowledge of God if you don't trust him. And giving as an act of worship shows, I trust you, God. You are the source. I may be the one that's down here doing the work, but you gave me that job. You gave me the strength to do that job. You gave me the strength to continue to have the favor of my boss and keep that job. And no matter what happens to that job, I am going to, I know that I'm always going to have enough because I know I give to you and that my faith will carry me through those hard times. So the fact that we should give is undeniable. So some people in the back of their mind are saying, okay, well, how much? We're crying out loud. If it's not 10%, what is it? 5%, 15%, 20%, 23%, what is it? The scripture says, as much as each person has decided in their hearts to give. And this is where it gets scary for pastors. Because pastors, you know, we say that, well, wait, there's not a minimum. Remember, you're given according to faith. And that's where we come into the application of this, and we're almost done. If you insist on maintaining the Old Testament system of giving, thinking it's only 10%, you're wrong. Because according to the Old Testament, if you add up all the prescribed offerings, all the prescribed sacrifices, all the, the, everything that the Hebrews had to give 
toward the church on a personal basis, a corporate basis, and everything else, it actually comes up to 23% of your gross income. Plus, a 20% fine for being late for any tithe you have ever missed. If you want to follow the law, then grab your checkbook, Write out whatever that past fine is to Whitehall Assembly of God right now. I'm sure the ushers would be happy to stay after and, and recount the offering for me. Or do you want to follow grace? What does grace say? Well, grace shows us Jesus. Jesus is our example. I mean, we sing a hymn that says, Jesus gave it all, all to him I owe. Is it just a heartwarming song, or do we actually really believe that? How much did Jesus give to save us? Everything. Think about it. Jesus put aside all the blessings he could have had on this earth. He could have been king. He could have had every riches, all the riches of this earth. He could have had property, anything his heart desired. But that pales in comparison. That doesn't even line up on the same plane as Jesus giving up his position in heaven to become a man. I mean, comparing it to us becoming an insect to save other insects describes like one millionth of one percent of what Jesus gave up to save us. How much should we give? Everything. 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 All to Jesus I owe. Because you know what? It's all God's anyway. There's not a thing on this earth that you can pick up, buy, purchase, or earn that God didn't already own in the first place. He has allowed you to steward that which he blesses you to have. So why do we cling so tightly to the things we have here on earth? If we believe that what we believe is really real, why in Jesus' name should a pastor ever have to get up and beg people to give to the one who gave up everything for us? And that's the application for us this morning. It's not about the money. God owns everything anyway. It's about faith. It's about trust. It's about life focus. It's about worshiping God in spirit and in truth and about trusting God with what you sow into his kingdom. And if you're focused on the greatness of God and his missions for you, then giving is easy. It's, it, it's nothing. But if you're focused on making your life better, getting the next big truck, smartphone, or whatever, then you're probably feeling very angry for having to sit through this message. But maybe that's the point. What's in your heart? Let's pray.